Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, and welcome back. This is Walk Through the Bible, week 10. And we're covering today what is in the Daily Bible, pages 296 to 328, or the dates of March 5 through 11. I'm calling today, Are You Ready? We have finished the law over the last two weeks, and we are getting ready to enter the land. So are you ready? Let's get started. Uh, First, I want to mention that uh, we are going to be having a first quarter review during week 12 or 13 of our study. So I encourage you to please let me hear from you. I want to know your comments. I want to know your questions. I want to hear from you to know where you are in our study, how it's going for you. And then I'll try to address some of those questions in our first quarter review. So please let me hear from you. I also hope that you've been enjoying the Going Deeper series that we are releasing alongside the Walk Through the Bible. We've done some really interesting interviews about the archaeological evidence of the Israelites in Egypt, of the evidences of the Exodus and the Red Sea crossing, Uh, We talked about the uh, Passover and the law with Rabbi Bowman. And this week, as we began to talk about the entering the land of Canaan, we have another Going Deeper series uh, that I will tell you about just a little bit later today. So please uh, take advantage of these resources. And uh, with that, let's get started. So today we're going to begin... Uh, in your reading, which is March 7th, because March 5th and 6th, we're wrapping up the law, and we covered that last week. Uh, Beginning here uh, for March the 7th to the 11th, we begin at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And I tell you, I have fallen in love with the book of Deuteronomy during our time this week. Uh, Such a beautiful book and it's full of God's love for his people. And uh, so as I repeated before, Deuteronomy is a renewal of the covenant that God had made at Sinai because this is a whole new generation of Israelites. And uh, so they began to renew the covenant at the beginning of the book. And then uh, Moses reviewed all the laws, and that's where we went through all of the various laws and how God was revealing his character to his people. And he was also teaching them about the need for atonement and forgiveness, and he provided the way for them to have atonement, and that he was providing for them the truths and the guidance and the instructions that he knew would keep them safe and unto him once they entered the Holy Land and they may be surrounded by pagan peoples. And so there was so much that we learned from the law. And now the book of Deuteronomy is wrapping up. It's doing that final review of the covenant. 
of in Deuteronomy 26 through 32. I just want to clarify that the Mosaic Covenant that God made with his people on Mount Sinai would not be what we would call a covenant about salvation. Uh, That came later in the New Covenant. This covenant was, as I said, a marriage covenant. It's where God was forming a relationship with his people and setting the parameters for that relationship and how it would work. So it was a a covenant. We often say it's a conditional covenant. But I want to be clear, the covenant was not conditional. It contained conditions. So based on their their, um, activities, their behavior, that's the word I'm looking for, they would experience either great blessings in their life because they're walking in fellowship with their God, or they would experience what is called curses, that there were inevitable consequences of them turning their back on God and that their behavior and their lifestyles would not be pleasing unto him and they would not walk in fellowship with him. So the Bible uses the terms blessing and curses. Well, we love a God that blesses, but we have a little bit of a problem thinking that God would curse. So I want to be clear here that the word curse is in no way implying any type of divination or that he's speaking this on uh, the people in some kind of spiritual way. This was a very common way that treaties were laid out during that time, that treaties always listed blessings of abiding by the treaty or curses if you broke your treaty with this other party. So if we go back to uh, Genesis 15, where God made a covenant with Abraham, and he had Abraham lay out the carcasses uh, on the ground in a certain way. Abraham knew how to do it. It was a common way of cutting a treaty or a covenant, or what we would call an agreement with another party. And so you lay these dead carcasses out, And then the two parties would walk through the middle of them, repeating the terms of the covenant. And the message was that if you broke the terms of this agreement that you were making, that you would be like the carcasses of the animal on the side, that you would suffer the consequences of that. And of course, what's interesting in Genesis 15, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, is that he puts Abraham into a deep sleep, and Abraham doesn't make the covenant with God. Instead, we saw two types of light or fire going through the covenant. God cut the covenant with himself, and uh, we as Christians see Jesus in that story, that he was with the Father walking through making this covenant, and Jesus then later suffered the consequences of the broken covenant by the people in his own body. Um, So that's the terms of blessing and cursing, very, very common in agreements. And that's what we have here in this wording, is the use of the term blessing and curses. But I hope that little background um, is helpful to you. So we could say the curses were consequences. It was a warning of inevitable outcomes of breaking the covenant. Now, in Deuteronomy 26, the Lord declares that they are his people, 
and then he pronounces these blessings of walking with him or the curses for breaking the covenant. One of the curses, I want to point out, one of the curses is dispersion. And it says here that he would scatter them. It says that uh, the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. So if they break the covenant, they will be exiled from the land. But then it goes on to say, but if that they will return to the Lord, that the Lord will send you back and that he will bring you back uh, to the land. So there was always this promise of return. So that's why I say the covenant itself is not conditional, like that the covenant could be done away with. Um, it's that it includes these terms uh, conditions by which they are to observe or they will suffer the consequences of the terms of a covenant that actually is an, an everlasting covenant. And then um, in another part here, he says that, you know, this covenant, it's not hard for you. It's not like it's, it's in heaven that you need somebody to go get it for you. Um, it, it's not so hard. It says that you carry it. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you may obey it. So God didn't think that the covenant was too hard uh, for man to obey. And then in Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20, he sums it all up and he says, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. God wanted life for his people, and he was letting them know how to attain it. And then he pleads with them almost, choose life. A couple of chapters later, he says, these are not just idle words. They are your life. By them, you will live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So God was instructing them how to live a long and fruitful and blessed life. In Deuteronomy 27, verses 9 through 10, it's really very beautiful, I think. And it says here, uh, let me find it, 27, 9 through 10. He says, Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all of Israel, Be silent, Israel. And listen, remember the word Shema, Shema Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Listen, O Israel, be silent and listen. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. Wow. That's like in the marriage ceremony where it says, you, I now pronounce you man and wife. He says, listen, O Israel, you have now become the people of the Lord your God. Well, if you're one that cries at weddings, this is where you cry. This is so beautiful. A few chapters later in Deuteronomy 32, uh, verse 10, is the famous scripture where he refers to the people as the apple of his eye. The word apple there is actually the word for uh, pupil. Um, or iris. It's the very delicate part, very sensitive part 
of the eye. You do not poke someone in the eye. And it's a very sensitive part of the body, very, very delicate um, a part of the body protected by the Lord. And uh, this is his love for his people, and he will surround them and he will protect them. Wow. Beautiful, right? If only we could end the story there. God then goes on to give Moses a song about the future unfaithfulness of his people. God knew all along. He was not called by surprise by the sin of the people of Israel or their failure of him. He knew all along and he gave Moses a song about it. I find that to be so amazing. But I want to read to you the very last line of this song as Moses goes through and he's all about the unfaithfulness of his people. And then at the end he says, But rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and he will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and his people. So God knew that they would be unfaithful. He knew that they would suffer because of judgment coming from the nations around him. But he ends the song with a warning. You nations, even if I use you to judge my people, watch out because I will avenge their blood. And one day I will make atonement for the land and for the people. From there, we have Moses goes up on Mount Nebo, where his days are going to end. And uh, Mount Nebo is located in Jordan today, what we call Jordan today. So it's on the east side of the Jordan River. He didn't enter the land of promise. And, but from Mount Nebo, you can look out and see almost all of the land. You can see all the way from Mount Hermon in the very north of Israel. You can see all of the central hill country. You can see the Jordan Valley below you that goes down to the, the Dead Sea. You can see the wilderness. You can see the hill country of Jerusalem. You can see the southern hill country. Um, I'm not entirely sure you can see over the hills to actually see the Mediterranean, but more than likely on a clear day, you could probably see the waters of the Mediterranean uh, off in the distance. It's quite a view. I've been up there. Uh, it's been many years since I was on Mount Nebo. Uh, that was from my very first trip to Israel back when I was 19 years old. So I won't tell you how many years ago that was. Uh, but it's an, a magnificent view that you can see from Mount Nebo. So God allowed Moses to see the promised land, but he was not the one to lead the people into the land. And so at this point, uh, Joshua takes leadership. Uh, Moses, before he dies, has laid hands on Joshua. He has conveyed upon him the leadership of the people and has blessed them. And then Moses goes up. Uh, to the, in the mountain where he uh, dies. And that's the end of the story for Moses. Moses was a very, very great prophet. Uh, actually, the greatest prophet that all of Old Testament Israel had seen. He was a magnificent leader. 
Uh, he developed, he was a lawgiver. He was um, a military leader. He was a prophet. He saw God face to face. He spoke to God. He heard from God. A very godly man and uh, an amazing leader that uh, God used in mighty, mighty ways. But this is the end of the story for Moses. And from here, Joshua takes the leadership. Now, when we were reading this week, we saw three or four times God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous. And I found it kind of funny. Why did he keep telling Joshua to be strong and courageous? What was so frightening to Joshua? Now, remember, Joshua and Caleb were two of the 12 spies that had gone into the land of Canaan, and they had seen the giants. They had seen the walled cities. They knew what they were up against and the people. So why did he need courage? Well, he had one group of people, the Israelites, but they were up against seven different groups of people living in walled cities with militaries and armies and well-armed, well-fortified. Those people were the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hevites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. So all seven against the one Israelites. I think that's why God kept telling Joshua, be strong and courageous, and I am with you, and we're going to do this. So now the Israelites have camped on the east side of the Jordan River in a plain area there. It's a flat area uh, right before you cross the Jordan into Israel. And um, there's a very, very rich significance to this area where they are going to cross the Jordan River. And so this week we uh, have an interview, another going deeper interview with Dr. Scott McKinney, and he's going to talk to us about the great significance of a lot of the typology and the, the types and shadows that we see coming together here right in this area of the country. So starting with the number 40, that the Israelites have now finished 40 years of wandering in the desert. They're now ready to enter the land. And he talks about the great significance of that number and as we see it throughout the Bible. And this area right here, they're about to cross. It's another water crossing. And he talks about the significance of the water crossings and almost like a baptism and the significance of baptism. And then it's in this area where they cross the Jordan that later in the New Testament, we have John the Baptist baptizing right here and we have Jesus being baptized right here. So I invite you to come back later this week for our Going Deeper series called Crossing the Jordan with Dr. Scott uh, McKinney. Now, let's pick up our story, though, from here. Joshua's in charge. So what does he do? He sends spies across the Jordan into Jericho. Now, why is this significant? Well, the one who had been a spy before now sends to the spies into Jericho. Now, why Jericho? You have to understand. Jericho was an amazing city. Uh, archaeologists say that Jericho 
had already been there for thousands of years. It was so well fortified with humongous walls. It was just so um, such a substantial um, established city. This is the first city they're going to try to take is Jericho. Why not go start with an easier city? But uh, Joshua knows the strategy and he obeys the Lord. And so he sends the spies into Jericho. Uh, in Jericho, the spies end up being sheltered by a woman named Rahab that in some translations is called a prostitute. And she had a home in the walls of Jericho. And so she sheltered the Israelites and she's told them, listen, everybody's afraid of you all. We've heard about what God has been doing through you and that your God is with you. And we're all afraid throughout the land. So uh, she's like, she knew what was coming. And she said, if I shelter you, will you save me? And they said, yes. And the spies go back then. And I this time though, the spies had learned their lesson. They knew they had to have faith. Otherwise, they would be left in the wilderness again. But they, they come back with a report full of faith. And they said, surely the Lord has given the lands into our hands because fear has, has filled the people. So they had learned their lesson. They came back with a good report full of faith. And they're ready now to enter the land. And so Joshua gives them instructions. And he, on the third day, the priests come. They take the Ark of the Covenant and they begin to go to the waters of the Jordan. Now, remember, the Ark of the Covenant was considered the presence of their God. The presence of God was there in the Ark of the Covenant and over it in the mercy seat. And so this was... A, more than a symbol to them, they felt they were carrying the presence of God with them. And so he would lead the way for them. And when the priests get to the water of Jordan, Joshua tells them, step down into the waters. Now, we know from the story, this is springtime. The waters are flooded there. The Jordan is much larger than it is today, although it was still not a major River. It still was a kind of a dinky river compared to the Euphrates or the Nile, but it was bigger then than it is now, and flood stage made it even larger. And so they're here, and the instructions are to step into the water. That is faith, my friends, that you step down into the water. This whole story requires faith. So if you ever feel like you're standing at the edge of a Jordan, you've got to get over to the other side where the blessings of God are, where the provision of God is, where he's leading you to go. The instructions here is step into the water. Only then are you really expressing your faith that God is with you. And in this story, he blocked the waters farther up the Jordan and the water dried up, and they crossed on dry ground again. So what was God doing here? Another generation was having a miraculous water crossing. And this is what I find so special in this story, is that God met a new generation 
in the wilderness and he renewed the covenant with them and he said, you are my people. And then he gives that new generation their own miraculous water crossing that they know that their God is with them. He did it again. Of course, the water crossing, as we'll talk about later this week on Going Deeper, can be as a foreshadowing, a type and shadow, a baptism, and what we do when we go down into the waters in faith and come up. The story continues. They make it through on dry ground, and then they go, and they, they're to take 12 stones from the bed of the Jordan and to erect them at a place as a memorial to what God has done for them. And that place is called Gilgal, which uh, in Hebrew uh, means like a circle of stones. So I think it was named after the fact on behalf of this memorial that was erected there. And then, this is what I love in the story, (laughs) then God tells them to do what? To be circumcised. Now here they are about to go on a military conquest to take the land They're all full of faith. They're all excited. They're ready to go do it. Their God is with them. And he tells them, basically, wound yourselves and be weak and in pain. Be circumcised. But they did it. Now, what is the significance of the circumcision? Back up, back up. To Genesis. Circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant in which God promised a people and a land. Here's the people, and they're entering the land. They need to renew the Abrahamic covenant, and the sign of it is circumcision. They had not been circumcised in the wilderness. This was a new generation. They needed to be circumcised. And so here, very near to where Shechem is and and the area where Abraham met with God, very, very near to there, his descendants are being circumcised in remembrance of that covenant that God cut with him. And in the very last verse of this section of the scripture with the story of the circumcision, God says this, Today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. You know, there's a saying, it says, it took one day to take the Israelite out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to take the Egypt out of the Israelites. Here, through circumcision, they, and they're in the land, God has pushed the reproach of Egypt away from them. The next thing they do is they observe the Passover. This is how we know it's springtime. They are remembering that first great water crossing of the their forefathers, the children of Egypt, of, of Israel that left Egypt, and now they've just had their own miraculous water crossing. So I'm sure it was a wonderful Passover. And after that, then we have this story where the divine commander appears to Joshua, and he says, take the sandals off your feet, for where you stand is holy ground. We're going to leave our story there this week. They've entered, they're standing on holy ground. This is the holy land. Why is it holy? Because it's God's land. He called it. 
He said, it's my land. It's holy. It's set apart unto me. And therefore, when you enter this land, you must enter it in righteousness and in faith. And when you live upon this land, you must live righteously and in right relationship with me or else you will be kicked out of the land because it's a holy land and it's for a holy people. So next week, we're going to pick up and talk about the story of Jericho. I know you read that this week, but I'm saving it for next week as we continue our story. I'll see you back here in a couple of days on our Going Deeper interview with Dr. Scott McKinney on Crossing the Jordan. And I'll see you back here then next week on Walk Through the Bible. We're going to talk about the amazing story of Jericho. I'll see you back here then. And until then, God bless.